Hi everyone, welcome to SAMA, a program which invites experts each week to discuss a topic from their area of expertise. This week we are delighted to have Dr. Dale Bredesen to talk to us about the prevention and reversal of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease causes people to forget family and friends, familiar places, the ability to work, drive, talk, feed, clean, and even dress themselves. It's never too late to prevent cognitive decline from stealing your life or to reverse Alzheimer's and those you love. Dale is an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases. Dale is a professor of neurology at the Eastern Laboratories for Neurodegenerative Disease Research, the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, LA. Dr. Dale is a prodigious um, innovator in medicine with over 30 patents to his name. His work has culminated in the development of a protocol called Recode, a reversal of cognitive decline currently used by thousands of patients. The Recode protocol is a scientifically proven, personalized programmatic lifestyle approach to preventing and reversing cognitive decline for those with pre-Alzheimer's disease, including subjective cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, early Alzheimer's disease, and anyone who is genetically at risk. Dale, welcome to SAMA. It's fantastic to have you with us. Thanks very much, John. Good to be here. How did you first get interested and decide to pursue this different approach towards cognitive design, uh, decline? Well, actually, when I went to college, um, I was interested in computers. And uh, the, the relationship between how a computer works and how a human brain works intrigued me. And like many other people, I got hooked on understanding the brain. And once I started studying that, of course, um, I became interested in why it is that neurodegenerative diseases are the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As people say, uh, everybody knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. It's true. So I, so I was intrigued by this idea of, you know, why are we doing so poorly in this area? And so uh, my laboratory has for 30 years studied the basic mechanisms of neurodegeneration. And the idea is, can we understand the fundamental drivers of the neurodegenerative process so that we can begin to fashion the first effective treatments? So that was the goal. Wow. Well, that's quite a, quite a high goal. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, yeah. You know, if you think about it, the thing that's been intriguing to me all of the treatments that have been developed for neurodegenerative diseases have been developed without regard to what's actually causing the decline. So for example, when you take a medicine for Alzheimer's disease, and of course the medicines don't work very well, that is a predetermined medicine. They're not asking what caused your cognitive decline. They're just saying, for everybody who has cognitive decline, let's try this medicine. And the fact of the matter is, what we are doing that's fundamentally different than all previous uh, approaches is that we're asking for each person, what are all the things that drive this? And you can actually see from the work in the test tube for the last 30 years, 
that there are many different drivers. So we usually tell the patients, imagine you have a roof with 36 holes. Now we're gonna to try to patch all 36 of the holes that actually are causing the decline. If you try to do it with a drug, it's a fantastic patch for one hole, but it doesn't get the other 35 holes. What you've done is paint a picture of pretty much what's happening broad spectrum in other areas of health yeah. where, where um, the remedy isn't tailored to the person. And I guess especially with cognitive decline, where it's so complicated. And the thought process, I mean, ultimately, I guess it has to be physical, but the understanding is so complex. The, the people don't you know. Yeah, this has been one of the issues. So what did you discover which turned things on its head? How on earth, basically, I'm asking you, Dale, can Alzheimer's, the, um, how can you partially reverse at all? Right. The effects of Alzheimer's. Yes, and as we say in the papers, it's reversal of cognitive decline. That's yes. what we have shown. Yes. We, we can't say your Alzheimer's has disappeared. You need an autopsy for that. Yes. What we can say is that the decline is now going in the positive direction instead of the negative direction. So what we studied for years, uh, we started out by looking at what are the processes that kill brain cells. Right. And so you can now work out, okay, here are the specific things. What are the receptors? And of course, there were a lot of clues that came from wonderful genetic studies that were done in many laboratories that identified specific genes that are associated with risk for Alzheimer's or associated with Alzheimer's. A simple example, APOE. And APOE is a gene that you can have APOE 2, 3, or 4. And you have two copies, so you could be a 2-3 or a 3-3 or a 4-3. And it turns out that APOE4 is the one that is the risk factor for Alzheimer's. If you have zero copies of APOE4, which is about three quarters of the population, your risk for Alzheimer's during your entire lifetime, about 9%. If you have a single copy, which is about a quarter of the population, about 75 million Americans have a single copy, and they are at about 30% risk during their lifetime. And if right. you have two copies, and that's about 7 million Americans, then more than 50% chance. You will, you will more than likely develop Alzheimer's during your lifetime. So you can now begin to trace how do these things impact cellular signaling. And what we discovered is that just as you see with other complex chronic illnesses, such as osteoporosis, for example, there is a beautiful balance between a whole set of signals that make synapses, that support memory formation, and that have an anti-Alzheimer's effect. And on the other hand, a separate set of signals that pull back. So the first ones we would call synaptoblastic. They are making and keeping synapses. The right. second set would be synaptoclastic. So these are pulling back. And there's a normal, beautiful balance. And so, for example, you know, you and I are both actively forgetting the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday. <laughs> Not important. But we are actively remembering where our keys are and what we're going to do later on today and those sorts of things. And you're keeping the most important things during your lifetime. Now, it turns out that everybody with Alzheimer's is on the wrong side of that balance. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And what's interesting is the mediator of that balance is actually at the heart of Alzheimer's disease. So therefore, what we're doing is no different than what you would do, for example, with osteoporosis. We're trying to increase all the things that are synaptoblastic, making the synapses, and we're decreasing all the things that are synaptoclastic. And as you indicated, it's different for each person. So for some people, it may be specific pathogens, specific reasons for inflammation. As you know, herpes simplex has been linked to Alzheimer's disease. HHV6A has been linked to Alzheimer's disease. P. gingivalis from your dental, from your dentition, your oral microbiome has been found in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. Various fungi, often from sinuses, have been found in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. So we start to look then for each person, what are all the contributors? And interestingly, typically we find 10 to 25 different contributors for each person. So we haven't seen examples where a person has Alzheimer's for one reason and one reason only. They typically have a number of things that are suboptimal that all contribute, and then we address those things. You say you use the word interestingly, but it's more concerningly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's, there's so many factors which are causing this. It's, it's you really got to be careful about the parents that you choose, isn't it? You choose the wrong parents, you get the genetic <laughs> makeup of your parents and you set yourself up for life. But if, um, well, obviously, yes, no, you have to remember though, your genetics in the case of, for example, APOE, it only changes your risk. It doesn't say that this is your fate. So in fact, there's a wonderful website with over 3,000 people who are APOE4 positive. It's called APOE4.info, yes. started by a woman, Julie G, uh, who is APOE44 um, and had some symptoms herself. She's okay. done absolutely beautifully, um, now uh, seven years into this. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and, and so there's a whole group of people, and these share information on prevention and reversal many of them being on the protocol or some version of the protocol um, that we developed in the laboratory. I want to talk about the protocol very soon. Um, before we do, can we uh, describe in more detail perhaps Alzheimer's? Um, for, for, for laymen, they think Alzheimer's, uh, a while ago they're talking about clumps of aluminium deposits of some form or deposits right. of plaque, which has got aluminium in it. So people are thinking it's a the pots they were cooking in that was increasing the amount of the incidence of Alzheimer's. Is there any truth in that? And what, what actually is Alzheimer's physically? Right. That's a really good point. Um, so dementia is a, as you know, a relatively common problem. Yes. The claim has been it's probably now the third leading cause of death in the United States. Wow. And in fact, uh, the first in, in the UK. Uh, so in the United States, you have cardiovascular disease as number one, yes. you have cancer as number two, and you have dementia as number three. Uh, and Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of yes. dementia. And dementia is global cognitive decline. And uh, m many people start out with problems with uh, memory, recent memory, uh, and then progress to having global cognitive decline, as you indicated, you know, 
difficulty with taking care of themselves and on and on. Mm -hmm. uh, within that, Alzheimer's disease, as I mentioned, the most common, and by definition, it simply refers to the pathology. When you look in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's, by definition, they have something called amyloid plaques yes. and neurofibrillary tangles. These are the two hallmarks of this disease. And of course, you have it with global loss of synapses and neurons, often with inflammation. Yes. So that's the the, the definition. So the, the, as you can see, this is a pathological definition. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell you what causes it. And it's a little bit like if you took your car into a mechanic and the mechanic said, oh yeah, we know what this is. This is car not working syndrome. Well, you say, and that's essentially Alzheimer's. It doesn't tell you what's causing it. It just says that if a pathologist were to look in your brain, he or she would see uh, a beta plaques, amyloid plaques, and they, they would see neurofibrillary tangles. Uh, so we have to understand then in order to prevent it and treat it, what's driving that process. Yes. Yes. When you're talking about multiple triggers, it's sounding less of a disease and more of a condition, a condition by which many things can um, invoke and um, yes. induce, you know, so I think, I think what, what people are starting to realize is what we call Alzheimer's is a response. It's not the thing that starts the problem. It's the response. And in fact, what we found in the lab, and, and in fact, others have, have suggested as well, is that Alzheimer's is actually a protective, I mean, it sounds backwards, but it's actually a protective response to different insults. Yes. So here's an example. If you have pathogens entering your brain because you have a poor immune system or because you have a poor blood-brain barrier or because you have repeated or high level of exposure, these things can get into your brain right. and you now have to produce something that is antimicrobial. You have to protect yourself. And in fact, a number of years ago, uh, professors Robert Moyer and, and Rudy Tanzi from Harvard showed that the amyloid that we associate as the bad guy in Alzheimer's is actually an antimicrobial peptide. So it has turned out that the Alzheimer's associated peptide, the, the part of the pathology of Alzheimer's, is actually, again, a response to the insult. It's part of your innate immune system, which is the evolutionarily older part of your immune system. So no surprise, as long as you are fighting these things, you are going to be producing the stuff that is downsizing your brain in what we end up calling Alzheimer's disease. So therefore, we need to identify these various intruders, the various insults, yes. get rid of those, and then reverse the, the actual balance between the synaptoblastic and synaptoclastic activity. Okay. So there's no... You can eat from... And a million Good point. So here's the thing. There are dozens, and we initially identified 36, but there are dozens and dozens of contributors, things like inflammation. Mercury, unquestionable mercury, in, especially in some people, is a bad actor. Yes. Now, aluminum is more controversial. As you indicated, years ago, it was suggested that, that aluminum may be one of the causes. Mm -hmm. And it, what is turning out is it still may be one of the contributors. It is. The final word is not in yet. Okay. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I would 
I would probably go for more on the ceramic side or something like that. Okay. Uh, but uh, so we, the, the, the jury is still out on aluminum. There are some things that suggest probably not a problem. Others that suggest, yes, it actually may end up turning out to be a contributor. But again, people keep saying, what's the cause of Alzheimer's? And that's a misunderstanding. This is a, path, a, a pathogenesis that can come with many different contributors. Right, right, both environmental and pathogen. A, a comment is coming from Carmela Walker. Carmela is a regular viewer on the show. We love it a bit. Um, what, she, what she says is she finds it interesting that people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, uh, generally only have five years of life left after being diagnosed. Um, and Karma is wondering whether that is possibly because of the medication that they're subsequently given after their diagnosis, whether the medication is, um, could possibly be working against them. Yeah. So actually, it's a wonderful point um, that she made. And there are two parts to understand here. So let me do the, the simple one first is do medications change things? Yes. Um, there has been a paper recently that, that suggested that people who go on the medications actually overall do slightly more poorly than the people who don't go on the medications. Gosh. But it's not clear whether that's due to the medications or whether it's due to something else. So we don't know that for sure. Um, the medications, which don't work terribly well, do have a slight bump in, in cognitive ability for you initially. But the bigger question is really about this five years. And so this is where the misunderstanding has arisen. The beginning of this disease has been suggested to be about 20 years before a diagnosis. So in other words, you can begin to pick up changes in the spinal fluid and in PET scans about 20 years before the diagnosis. So the disease that we thought was a disease of old age, of 60s, 70s, 80s, is really a disease of your 40s, and in some cases even earlier than that, right. and 50s. And this is now starting, and things, and so you have a period where you don't have symptoms. Then you have the second period, which we would call SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. And these are people where they know there's something wrong, Often their spouses and their coworkers may notice something's wrong, but they're still able to test within normal limits. So, and it's clear the disease is ongoing at that time. Right. That often lasts, that period of SCI often lasts a decade. Then if you don't do something about it then, you go on to a period that is called MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And that is a pre-Alzheimer's condition. And that often lasts a few years. During that time, each year of MCI, five to 10% of all MCI patients will now convert to full-blown Alzheimer's. And the definition of conversion to Alzheimer's is when you begin to lose activities of daily living. So if you're having trouble with dressing yourself or things like that, then by definition, you have crossed over from MCI to Alzheimer's. So of course, we want to get people either in the pre-symptomatic period and get them on prevention, mm. or we want to get them at the earliest possible of SCI, which is why we encourage people, please, just as you get a colonoscopy when you're 50, please get a cognoscopy if you're 45 years of age or older. A, some, some blood tests, I have to say, it's, it's much less unpleasant than a colonoscopy. You get a couple of blood tests, 
you get a, a simple online cognitive assessment, and then you can actually get on appropriate treatment if you are early in the disease process, or you can get on prevention. Um, so that's the key. Please do not wait. In the past, because there hasn't been anything to do, of course, people say, well, just wait because there's nothing we can do anyway, and let's just hope you don't have Alzheimer's. That's really backwards. We want to get in as early as possible. And hey, for someone who has complaints, but it doesn't turn out to be Alzheimer's, well, hallelujah. But you still have cognitive changes. You still want to fix those cognitive changes, whether it's labeled Alzheimer's or not. Understand. Understand. Now, the current medication for Alzheimer's focuses on the plaque, what the, which is all, all the other uh, physical structures of Alzheimer's, which were created by the body to combat um, it, uh, the, this onslaught in the, um, on the brain. So um, is this why the decline is possibly a little bit faster? If, if, like if you don't have the plaque build, if the, if the brain doesn't have the plaque build up, which is set up to, um, you know, which was created by the brain as, as, uh, to, to fight this onslaught, then, then um, the brain will start declining even faster. It seems a little bit counterproductive. Well, right. So, so you're right in that the recent trials have been about uh, things that remove plaque. Yes. But those aren't the original. The original medications and the ones that you would get today if you went yes. into an Alzheimer's center would be Aricept and Exelon and things like that. Those are inhibitors of cholinesterase. So when you make acetylcholine, which is a critical neurotransmitter for memory. Mm. And by the way, things that inhibit that are things that actually <clears throat> have like scopolamine and things that are actually uh, give you a, a loss of memory. So, and of course there are drugs out there that do this that can increase your risk for cognitive decline. So what, oh. they, what these drugs do, they prevent you from breaking down your own acetylcholine. So you have a little increased kind of kick of this. Um, so it can buy you a little bit of time. However, the problem is when you get this that now, in, that now inhibits your cholinesterase, what does your body do? Your body responds by making more cholinesterase. So ultimately, it's not terribly helpful. And as you can imagine, if you suddenly cold turkey that, you're in worse shape than you were. Oh, absolutely. Your body is now increased. Now, the second group, was, which is just one drug, Namenda, uh, or memantine, that is a glutamate antagonist. So that's one that actually in, essentially inhibits, uh, in a mild way, your excitotoxicity. And so excitotoxicity is essentially overstimulation, and it's something that you do see in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so this is inhibiting these glutamatergic synapses. Now, as you indicated, the newer ones, the ones that have been tested recently, have been to reduce the plaque. And you're absolutely right. Our concern was, if you take the plaque away, if you take the amyloid away, are you gonna potentially cause a problem? Because this thing was made as part of a response to an insult. And indeed, we've seen numerous people now who had these and actually each time they would get the injections, because these are injected unlike the other ones which are oral, okay. they would uh, go downhill and then they would slowly start to come up and then they get the next injection, they would go downhill again. On the other hand, there are some people who do seem to get some benefit. So these have been very controversial. And in fact, although virtually all of them have failed, 
uh, one now, there's a, an attempt to resurrect one of them, uh, uh, which is called aducanumab. And we'll see what happens. It'll be up to the FDA, of course, to determine whether this will be tested. It's very clear these don't make you better. All they're doing is they're trying to make the decline slower. Whereas what we're talking about is let's actually make things reverse, reversal of cognitive decline instead of slowing of cognitive decline. But that's where we stand with the drugs right now. Why do people with Alzheimer's disease have a reduced lifespan if their memory is um, gone or reduced? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it shouldn't affect their lifespan. Why, why do they generally live just five years from the um, diagnosed date? Right. And of course, some do live longer. It depends a lot on the care. But what happens as you lose the ability to care for yourself, um, you have problems with incontinence and problems with uh, infections, problems with taking care of yourself. Okay. Um, so what happens is people uh, typically aren't as mobile. They, so they may have a pulmonary embolus from sitting around. They typically get infected. Um, they may have sepsis from a urinary tract infection. Uh, or they may get a, a poor dentition. There, there are many reasons where they may ultimately be overwhelmed by infections. Uh, many of them undergo falls and break their hips um, and then are laid up. Um, so there are numerous reasons um, that the lifespan is typically not the lifespan uh, of a person who does not have Alzheimer's. But you're absolutely right, just losing your memory, that alone doesn't seem to, doesn't necessarily shorten your lifespan. But right. all the things that come later as you have this global neurodegenerative process, those are the things that actually end up limiting your lifespan. Now I want to ask you about the RECODE protocol. This is the protocol that you developed to um, re reduce and reverse the effects of Alzheimer's. Um, is this a protocol, that, or could you describe the protocol to us, please? Sure. So back in uh, 2011, we were developing drugs in the lab, and the idea was we could see this balance between the synaptoblastic and the synaptoclastic, and we could see it centered on a molecule called APP. And so we actually screened in the laboratory for drugs that would put you on the right side of that balance, that would give you more synaptoblastic activity and less synaptoplastic activity. And we identified several, and so we wanted now to progress to a clinical trial. And so we were sitting there, and, and, I, and I was trying to get this trial going and trying to get all the appropriate paperwork, and I realized, well, wait a minute. This thing is gonna change the balance but there are many things that may contribute to that balance that could essentially go right around our drug. Mm. And so we could end up having a drug that does what it's supposed to do and yet fails in a clinical trial. So I thought, well, you know, we don't have the resources of a big drug company. We're, a, you know, we're an academic laboratory. So I thought, how can we ensure that our clinical trial has the best chance of success? And so I thought, well, you know what, let's add in some brain training and let's see, okay, maybe our drug plus some brain training. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, let's, let's look at inflammation. Maybe we should also be adding, of course, then the light went off after a couple of these and I realized, well, wait a minute, why are we leaving out any of the things that contribute to that central pathway in cognitive decline? And so then we thought, okay, we need to do 
It's going to, you know, it turns out that guess what affects that pathway? All the things that the epidemiologists have told us affect Alzheimer's. Your diet, your exercise, your sleep, your stress, your brain training, herbs that you may be taking, supplements you may be taking, drugs you may be taking, these things all impact that. And so what happened was we then proposed in 2011 the first comprehensive trial for people who had pre-Alzheimer's. And this was actually going to be done in Australia. And we got turned down by both the public and the private review boards because they said, you guys are trying to test more than one variable and you're not allowed to do that in a clinical trial. And we said, well, wait a minute, but this is the way the disease works. So the idea is you, know, you wanna get at all the things that are actually causing the problem. So after we got turned down, of course, I was very uh, depressed and uh, I got an interesting call from a person who was referring someone uh, to me and I said, look, you know, I've been in the lab for 20 years. We're not, you know, we don't really have, uh, I'm not, I don't see Alzheimer's, you know, I can help you. But she said, look, this woman is going to commit suicide. Could you just talk to her? Right. And so the woman actually came out to the lab and we spent two and a half hours going through everything. And she had a you know, very typical history where her mother had passed away with Alzheimer's. She now had very clear symptoms. The doctor had already told her, you know, you have early Alzheimer's, there's nothing to be done. And so we went through all the different things that we were going to do in that trial. And frankly, I, I never, I thought I would never hear from her again. But three months later, she called me at my home on Saturday morning and said, I can't believe it. You know, my memory is so much better than it's been in 30 years and on and on and on. And so we started realizing, okay, this is pointing us in the right direction. We need to understand these various pathways. And so we started, and that, that's what became Recode for reversal of cognitive decline. Um, just last year, we published 100 cases of documented improvement, where in all cases, you know, we had documentation before and after to show increases, uh, increases in cognition. Um, in some cases, we also had pre and post MRIs showing increases in volumetrics. In some cases, also pre and post quantitative EEGs uh, or evoked responses showing improvement in electrophysiology as well. Uh, so we are continuing with looking at how can we optimize this uh, and you know, what are, when, when you see ones that respond the best, why is that? When we, you see ones that do not respond, what is the basis for that? So we are continuing to evolve this process. We, I lost the audio just a little bit when you're describing that woman that was in cognitive decline and then uh, started on this protocol. But uh, that must have been that, that was a big win for you, and, and you seem to sort have of downplayed it. It was a bit of a success, you know. And that was that must have been a fantastic pump of adrenaline when you when, she, when you got that call and she said what the um, what her results were and how she went from the edge of being suicidal to getting her memory yeah. back and getting no her question. It really validated all the many years of work in the lab. And it said, you know, we, we were on the right track because you don't know, you can say, well, we can heal these mice. But you really <laughs> don't know until a human being actually gets better. And of course, as you know, most of the treatments that have come from mouse studies for neurodegeneration have not translated to being useful for humans, unfortunately. So yes, you're right. When the woman called, of course, the first thing, I put down the phone and looked at my wife, who's an integrative uh, practitioner, yes. and I said, 
she's better. You know, we were on the right track here. <laughs> the second thing was I immediately thought to myself, wait a minute, maybe she's the only one. Maybe this is an outlier. Oh. Let's see this in another you know, 100,000 people before we're sure. Well, then we looked at the first 10 and yeah. nine of them got better. Then we looked at additional ones and a number of got better. And then we just recently published 100. Now, at the same time, there are many who don't. And so we're still looking at what are the critical pieces to understand. I think the bottom line here is this is not magic. It's biochemistry. So you have to look. If you're getting better, there's a reason. Yes. If you're not getting better, there's a reason. And you have to identify those reasons and then address them. Right. It's interesting that you're talking about mice and how there are differences between mice and humans. There are, there are a few differences like size, the amount of fur that we have. Well, not so much myself, but others. And um, they, they deemed cigarette smoking safe because it doesn't cause lung cancer in mice. Uh, and so this is, it's a, <laughs> okay, that was a face palm moment. Well, what you say is very true. You've done studies and you've you know, possibly used the mice and they've worked for mice, but how does that translate to real people? And people are complicated. And so you've... You'll remember, you'll remember uh, what was it, about 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, where the, the claim came out, a big claim, uh, you know, there's wonderful results with mice, we will cure cancer within the next couple of years. And this was yeah. based on mouse studies. And of course, it hasn't happened. Yeah. And these, these diseases where we model them in mice, such as Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, they aren't identical to what you see in human. And in fact, in Alzheimer's, it's quite different because the mouse model is actually more applicable to familial Alzheimer's disease which represents less than 5%. Most of Alzheimer's disease is so-called sporadic Alzheimer's, not familial. That's what the mouse doesn't model. And therefore, it's difficult to take the results that you got in a mouse and apply them to a human and see, it, and see a positive response. Right. Pathologically, how does Parkinson's differ from Alzheimer's? Because you, you specifically looked at Alzheimer's. But there's other conditions that uh, represent cognitive decline as well. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because, because, you know, we're looking at the fundamental concepts, the things that drive the degenerative process. So, of course, now that we've seen that in Alzheimer's, we can manipulate these various variables and change that balance for the positive. Of course, we're now looking at the biochemistry for each of these others. Parkinson's, Lewy body, frontotemporal dementia, and on and on and on, um, and you know, ALS, et cetera. And what we're finding is that the same sort of thing happens, but it's you've got to now change the protocol with the specific biochemistry of each of these diseases. Now, in Alzheimer's, it's really fundamentally about neuroplasticity, which is why you're losing your memory. This is a plastic system. And when you're, you can imagine if you've got a plastic system at work where, you know, you've got people coming in and building things and then people taking them down and you have that beautiful balance. Now imagine for years and years, the people that do the building never show up and the people that do the demolition are doing extra. The place just starts getting smaller. That's really what Alzheimer's is about. Now in Parkinson's, it is different. 
in that the system that goes awry there is about motor modulation. It is about fine tuning your movements, which is why when you have problems there, what do you do? You go more slowly and you have a tremor and you fall down. So these are the things that are related to fine tuning of your motor system. Fundamentally different than when you're talking about Alzheimer's, about neuroplasticity. So it's a different system, different things affect it. But the thing that's similar is that in both of these, and in all of the others, it's far from what we currently believe, there is a mismatch between the support that you have for that neural subsystem and the demand. So these are beautifully balanced when you're young, but based on your genetics, your lifestyle, your what you're eating, all these various things, as you get older, you may have a chronic or repeated mismatch between the supply and the demand. And in the case of Parkinson's, it is especially about mitochondrial complex one. This is a system that demands that part of the mitochondria. So when you have an inhibitor of that, for example, when you are failing in that part of your mitochondrion, what do you see? Parkinson's disease. And instead of the amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangle, you see what's called Lewy bodies. And these are from a different protein. The main one in that one is called alpha-synuclein. And these are, so it's a different way. But guess what? Alpha-synuclein is also an antimicrobial peptide. So again, you are now trying to fight off something. And as you know, there's been a lot of, lot written recently about the relationship between the micro, the gut microbiome, gut health, and Parkinson's. Uh, and so this is something where you can think of Alzheimer's as coming in through the nose or through the oral cavity. And the pathologists have been telling us for years, when you look at the brain, it looks like something that started from your nose and entered the brain in Alzheimer's. And similarly, what it looks like for Parkinson's is that it came from the gut up into the brainstem. And that may turn out to be, we'll see as time goes on. So, so right. these are variations on the same theme. Understand. Now you've, um, you've done a lot of studies. You've, you're now an expert in the field. Are there any foods that you avoid? Oh my gosh, uh, absolutely. So, you know, we, we, in fact, we've just finished a book um, and I finished it actually with uh, my wife, the, the integrated physician, uh, Dr. Lachine Bredesen, and also with Julie G that I mentioned earlier, the APOE4 uh, person who had started the APOE4.info. And food turns out to be important. And, you know, when I was in medical school, the claim was, you know, nutrition's not that important. You get the right medicine, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> well, it turns out that especially for complex chronic illnesses, I know we laugh now, but it was amazing that, you know, back in the 70s when I was well, in Well, no, it's actually, it's actually still the same now. Amazing. So, yes, there absolutely are critical pieces for what you eat with respect to your risk for Alzheimer's. So let's talk about the anti-Alzheimer's approach. Let's, as I wrote a, a piece in the book, The End of Alzheimer's, about how to give yourself Alzheimer's. If you wanted to give yourself Alzheimer's, there's a diet you can eat, there's a whole lifestyle you can have, and you will increase your risk for Alzheimer's dramatically. So you wanna give it to yourself, you start with some sugar, 
Um, you want to have a leaky gut. You want to have inflammation. You want to uh, eat frequently. You want to have no fasting periods. You want to eat processed foods. These are all things that increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. On the other hand, you want to prevent your decline. You want to decrease your risk then there absolutely are critical features. So what we propose is a diet, which is we call KetoFlex 12-3. And here's why we call it that. So step one, ketosis. We want to get people into mild ketosis. Two, it's flexitarian. So this is a plant-rich diet. If you want to be a vegetarian, no problem. But if you want to be an omnivore, no problem. You want to make meat not the major thing. And if you're going to have meat, fine. Make sure to have some, some low mercury fish, but for the food, for the meat you have, you wanna have, if you're gonna have chicken, have pastured chicken, and be aware that chicken often has some arsenic in it, so be careful about that. And if you're going to have eggs, great. Many of us are deficient in choline, which you can get from eggs and liver and things like that. Then make sure that, again, that this is, these are pastured eggs. And so, and if it's gonna be beef, make sure it's grass-fed beef. So these are things that will help you have a plant-rich diet. And then the 12-3 that we talk about is a minimum of 12 hours of fasting between finishing dinner and starting breakfast, brunch, or lunch. So you need that fasting period. Very helpful, actually, for autophagy, helpful for cleaning out your brain, helpful for all sorts of things, improving your blood pressure, which, by the way, uh, is one of the risk factors for Alzheimer's. You've got chronic hypertension, you're at greater risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so this yeah. is a, what we call the KetoFlex 12-3 diet. It is a plant-rich, insulin-sensitizing, mildly ketotic, uh, organic foods mostly diet. Your suggestion for 12 hours between dinner and breakfast, I, I, I read that as you can sleep in in the mornings. <laughs> A good excuse to, uh, to sleep yeah. in. And by the way, if you are APOE4 positive, you actually need a little longer fasting and typically 14 to 16 hours if you're APOE4 positive, but 12 to 14 hours if you're APOE4 negative. And of course, some people like to use the so-called fasting mimicking diet. Um, that's fine too. Uh, whatever you do, you want to get some time with some fasting. It actually turns out to be an important part of the overall approach. And then of course, Exercise, exercise for numerous biochemical mechanisms is very, has a very much of an anti-Alzheimer's effect. Um, it improves your insulin sensitivity. It increases your ketosis, for example. Um, it improves your cerebral blood flow. So all of these things, it, uh, you know, improves insulin sensitivity, as I mentioned. It just, it, for multiple mechanisms, very, very helpful. Um, and then sleep. And many, many people don't realize that when they go to sleep at night, they are desaturating their blood so that their oxygen drops at night. We see the tip of the iceberg as people who have obstructive sleep apnea. But there are many other people as well who drop their oxygen. And most of them aren't checking. Most of their doctors aren't checking. So we recommend for anybody who has symptoms or is at risk, please get your oxygen saturation checked at night. If it is dropping below 92%, and especially if it's into the 80s or 70s, please improve that at night, which you can do numerous ways, uh, typical things like CPAP and things like that. 
So there are, the bottom line is we've been told in the past that there is nothing that will prevent or reverse cognitive decline. And in fact, the armamentarium is huge. It's just the opposite of what we were always taught. There's a tremendous amount that can be done and should be done. And in fact, Alzheimer's should be a rare disease. And if we all did the right things for prevention and early reversal, we could make it a rare disease. Right, right. Uh, your protocol that you've developed is very different from the way that Alzheimer's is being treated at the moment, which is basically through drugs, certainly through the allopathic avenues. Um, how has it been received? Yeah, you know, that's such an interesting point. And we've really learned. It, it reminds me so much. You, know, you look at like Ulysses from James Joyce. It's capturing a whole life in a single day. We're, this is capturing a whole life in a single disease. We've, this has taught us about the molecular biology of neurons. It's taught us about some, something about genetics. It's taught us about uh, the way we eat. It's taught us about our lifestyles. And it's taught us about the resistance of medicine to change and the resistance of many people to change their thinking. Yes. So when we first published the, the first example of reversal of cognitive decline back in 2014, People were extremely skeptical and people said, you know, we don't believe this and on and on. Uh, someone wrote an article about how uh, this is all about pseudo medicine where they have no people who are getting better. We have many people who are getting better and they're saying this is pseudo medicine. Well, okay, you tell us when you've got some results because we're publishing results repeatedly in people who actually did show improvement. Now, interestingly, if you just look in the last year, suddenly everywhere you're seeing articles by different groups saying, oh, we combined all these things and we actually got some nice results. So in fact, people are starting to come to the same conclusions. Now, again, a lot of people aren't checking to see first why the person got it. So they're kind of shooting blindly. Well, we're gonna improve, you know, we're gonna give them antihypertensives and we're gonna try to improve their diet and do some exercise. We still think it's much better to look to see what's actually causing the problem instead of shooting blindly. But nevertheless, we're seeing repeated reports now of some improvements where you have a multimodal process. And this simply didn't happen uh, before the first paper back in 2014. No, things, they, people like things compartmentalized rather than holistic. Yeah, absolutely. But again, you have to go after what's actually driving the process. And so, you know, if you're, if you're being attacked by, uh, you know, mosquitoes and ants and moths, then the idea of saying, um, let me put lidocaine on you so you won't feel it and they can continue to attack you. It, it's kind of silly. You really want to get rid of the mosquitoes and the moths, you know, and the, you want to address the things that are actually Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and we are complicated machines, aren't we? So it's not going to be a simple answer. It's going to be something complete. Um, do you, um, in your studies, have you found a link between blood types? Are uh, some blood types more uh, susceptible to Alzheimer's? You know, it's a really good point. Um, there's a whole set of genetic markers. So there are dozens of things that give you some increased risk. And as I mentioned earlier, the most common one is this APOE4. There are all sorts of other ones, you know, TREM2 and, and uh, uh, it, uh, the uh, uh, complement receptor and, you know, on and on. There, there, are, there are about uh, three or four dozen of these things. Uh, but 
blood type, uh, ABO blood types, standard blood types, I'm not aware of differences with those blood types and Alzheimer's disease. Okay, great. It's good to know. Um, now, you've given us a lot of information and it's um, been fast flowing as well. Um, you've mentioned a book and you've mentioned websites. I was wondering if you could uh, give the name of the book and the websites again slowly so we can uh, refer to these later. So the book is called The End of Alzheimer's. Yes. Um, it's now out in 31 languages. Um, so you can get it in your, just about any language. Uh, and uh, it, is, it came out from Random House. Uh, and then um, the, uh, the websites for getting tests, um, you can get direct tests, mycognoscopy.com. You can look at that. Um, and then for ge more general information, um, you can look up uh, drbredesen.com. Thank you. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed the seminar. I really admire you, not just for what you've achieved, but also your the way that you've approached the problem and and your and your understanding, the your appreciation of the fact that it's not a narrow. Even though Alzheimer's is one specific condition, right. it can be a broad spectrum of causes, and so you've um, you've succeeded where. Others would fail because people generally, just through nature, specialize. They think, oh, it must Thank be this you. or uh, it must yes, be so, that. Yeah. But it, it's a mixture of many things. And so I admire you for your tenacity. You've been doing it for a long time and you didn't give up. And you kept that high goal post. <laughs> kept aiming for it. Kept aiming for it till the ball went over. It's, it's um, very commendable. I, I really do think it's amazing what you've achieved. Um, I'd like to thank you for your uh, time, you here, time here on SAMA. It's, um, you've, you've mentioned things which I personally had no idea about. I really, uh, I, I take heart with the fact that something which I had previously thought was irreversible can actually be reversed. Things can be done. I don't like things where there's no, there's no way you can be resolved. And um, okay, right. if they, generally the answer, if you go to a doctor is if it can't be solved by a drug, then sorry about that. <laughs> but if it, if it can be solved by lifestyle change as in combination with other things, um, other protocols, it's, got, it's better than brilliant. Your your protocol is it quite a, is it a complex one where you've got to combine different foods with different uh, supplements? Is it um, does it require any form of drugs? Is it something which is easy for people to do? So you're absolutely right. You know we, as you said earlier, you know we are complex organisms, we humans, and it's almost surprising that. Doctors have gotten away. We have for thousands of years, we doctors have gotten away with giving you, you know, one potion, one little drug. And those were good for simple illnesses like mm -hmm. pneumococcal pneumonia. Uh, but we're now almost all of us dying of 21st century illnesses, which are complex chronic illnesses that have many different inputs to them. And therefore, you're right. We have to develop appropriate targeted, essentially what would be called precision medicine protocols. Yes. And so, yes, unfortunately, today, 
there are some complexities. You do want to do an, you know, an appropriate diet and an appropriate program that includes stress reduction, includes sleeping, making sure you're getting not only quantity of sleep, but quality of sleep. It does include specific herbs that have been used for thousands of years that actually can be very helpful when used with the right combination of things. And actually drugs are going to be very important for Alzheimer's, but they've all, virtually all failed because they've been trying to use them as a monotherapy, which yes. makes no sense. So yeah. when you combine the whole thing with the drugs, now the drugs should actually be quite helpful. So we often recommend use a health coach, work with a health coach who can help you to optimize. It's a different way of thinking about medicine. You don't just take a pill and go home. You're gonna to continue to tweak things over time. You identify what's actually causing the cognitive decline and then target those things. Good advice, great advice. Thank you once again for coming on to our show. It's been fantastic having you with us. All right. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was the end of the seminar. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. It was, it was very enjoyable. I, I was thinking, you know, the, the, um, the information obviously can get much, much deeper. And oh, yeah, there's you, so you, much. Shall I stop the recording, by the way? Oh, it'll, it'll automatically stop. It's okay. It'll look after itself. It'll automatically stop. When, okay. when, you, when you quit Zoom, it'll, it'll stop, and then it'll compress the, the video file. Now, you, you gave the, the message in layman's terms, in a, in a language that we can all understand, and that was fantastic. I was a little bit wary. Maybe, you know, you, maybe things will get a little bit deep, but no, we, um, we managed to um, convey the messages, and you, you gave yeah, the information. I mean, when you see how it works, it yeah. actually makes sense. And so I think a lot of the voodoo around Alzheimer's has been because people were confused. Yes. Uh, but it actually does make sense. And, you know, what a surprise. What you eat actually makes a difference. <laughs> you know, and all these other things are all critical. And, and one of the interesting things that's come out of this is that various pieces, things like uh, you know, things that enhance your oxygenation at night, or you know, things like Rife machines, and things like stimulate the brain. There's, as you know, there's a lot on uh, Violite and other light stimulation. These all have their places in the overall program, depending on what is causing your decline. So I think we're gonna be able to use all these different modalities yeah, which have all been used as monotherapies in the past without as much success. Well, now doing it, knowing how you're using them and for what is actually going to make things much more successful. Maybe in our lifetimes, Dale, we'll see, we will see the headline at the Lancet, diet is important. <laughs> <laughs> and mum was right. <laughs> we are what we eat. Mum was right all along. Yeah, exactly. Mother was right. All right, fantastic. Well, thanks, okay. thanks for having yeah, me yeah, on, John. Thank you for your time. All right, take okay. care. Bye-bye.